Well, why don't we go ahead and get started? Good morning, everybody. I think we've got some folks who will be filtering in as we begin, but um, let's go ahead and, and start with a prayer. This uh, prayer that I've selected for today is actually a prayer that is assigned for Christmas Day, but it's just such a wonderful expression of the Trinity. So it's a Trinitarian prayer that we've been talking about the Trinity, but it also connects with our thought primer. And, um, and the thought primer is this. There's a line in the popular song, Here Comes Santa Claus. Here comes Santa Claus, here comes... And it says, Santa knows we're all of God's children. So how does that popular understanding of us being God's children, how does that compare to what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a child of God? So that's, that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at today. So I've got my mind on Christmas. It's a sort of a Christmas-based question. We're going to use a Christmas prayer. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you and the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen. Well, last week we began... um, we moved into the, to the second third of the class, which has to do with Christian beliefs. That is, what do, we, what do we know to be true about who God is? We began by talking about the creeds, which are summaries of our beliefs. Good morning. We talked about the fact that the creeds assume the existence of God. They don't make an argument for the existence of God. They just assume the existence of God. And... We talked about the fact that we, you know, accept God's existence by faith rather than by proof. But having said that, we said, you know, there are certainly some lines of thought that we can use. If someone asked us, well, why do you believe in God? Now, you might have a personal answer to that question of why you believe in God. But we also could, could offer these lines of thought as well. And there are three lines of thought that we talked about. We talked about the fact of the universe, that the universe it's, itself cries out for the existence of a creator. We talked about the nature of human beings, um, that we have these unique qualities as human beings that beg for the existence of a creator who put those things in us. It's very difficult to arrive at a full understanding of the human being if if the only tool in your toolbox is a naturalistic um, explanation. And then we talked about the person of Jesus, um, how Jesus himself, as the very embodiment of God, cries out for the existence of God. But then we said, okay, we acknowledge the existence of God. We believe that God exists. Well, then the next obvious question is, well, then what is this God like? What's his nature? What do we know to be true about him? And of course, we talked about the fact that we believe in a triune God. And we began this discussion of the Holy Trinity and what does it mean that we believe in the Trinity? Where, is, where, where, where does that belief come from? And with this backdrop, we are now ready to zoom in and to look at each of the individual members of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to begin really talking about the Father, who he is, what do we know about him? And there are three things that we're going to focus on, um, him as creator, ruler, and again as Father, the first person of the Trinity. Now, I want to just give you all a heads up. Two of the things that we're going to talk about today might push on you a little bit. First, we're going to talk about the intersection between faith and science. 
So for some, that might push on you a little bit. The second thing that we're going to talk about is our understanding of the fatherhood of God, which is different from the world's understanding of the fatherhood of God. Again, it might push on you to think about something that you haven't thought about before. But let's begin with the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed describes God as the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And in that one single statement about the first person of the Trinity, there are actually three things being said, and we're going to take them in, re- in turn, but in reverse order. We're going to talk about how he is creator, how he is almighty, how he is father. First, he is creator. The Nicene Creed expands on this a bit and adds that he is the maker of all that is seen and unseen. And this, of course, is just a summary of what we discover in the very first book of the Bible. If you've got your Bible with you, open it up to the very first book. Um, If you don't know your way around the Bible, it's the easiest book to find because it's right there at the beginning. It's Genesis chapter 1. Which begins this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that begins the seven-day account of the creation. And it expresses the spiritual truth that God is the creator of everything, whether we can see it or whether we can. And this often raises the issue of the relationship between science and faith. And in particular, how do we hold together this historic account of how God created the heavens and the earth and a scientific discovery of how the world was begun. How do we hold those two things together? And I want to talk about that. Now, on a personal note, I think I've already mentioned to you all my um, undergraduate degree is in physics. I was not an A-plus student. I did actually get a degree, so, um, but, but I have a great love for science, a great love for all sciences, but in particular for physics especially. But be that as it may... Science, as wonderful as it is, can really only answer the little questions. Questions like what, how, and when. And friends, as important as those questions are, and and they are important, again, I devoted a, a good portion of my life to answering those questions. As important as they are, those are not the questions that will keep you up late at night. Unless, of course, you are a scientist and you're trying to write a grant for a proposal, then you might be up at night wrestling with the questions of what, how, and when. But with that one exception aside, those aren't the big questions of life. Those aren't the questions that pull at your heart. In terms of the real stuff of life, in terms of the challenges that you and I face in this life, these are the little questions. But the book of Genesis, the Bible is really concerned about the bigger questions. Why? Who? For what purpose? To what end? And I would argue that when you read through, well, all of the Bible, but in particular, as we read through those first five books of the Bible that we believe Moses was the author of, that Moses' primary concern is answering the big questions, not what I'm calling the little questions. Now, within the body of Christ, there are at least five different views of how we should understand those seven days of creation. 
All five views believe that Genesis is history. But of those five views, there are different opinions about how should we, how should we consider those seven days. Now, I'm just going to talk briefly about two of them. But if this is something that you're interested in to, to explore further, I'd be happy to, um, to get a cup of coffee and to talk more about it. But, but let's, let's just at least outline two of, of the views of the seven days of creation. Within the body of Christ, there are those who understand the seven days of creation in, those, in that first chapter of Genesis to be seven literal 24-hour periods. That is one interpretation of the seven days. Others, and I'd put myself in this second category, um, believe that, that while Genesis, and we would go to the mat to argue that Genesis is in fact historical, that those seven days represent seven epics of time. But I'm really not interested in pressing you into either of these two camps. Again, as I told you, there are actually five different interpretations. I'm not really concerned with pushing you into either camp in terms of what you believe, in terms of the what, how, and when of creation, the mechanics of creation. Again, I'm happy to to discuss it, but that's not what I'm concerned about. What I'm concerned about are the big questions. Now, first, I want to be clear about a couple things in terms of science and, and faith. First, it's possible to have a love and respect for both of these fields, for the field of science and for the field of theology, and to hold those two things together. And to see those disciplines, um, that they do not have to be in conflict with each other. It's not to say that there might not be some wrestling or tension between the two, there certainly will be, but that ultimately these two disciplines of science and theology are answering different questions. The Bible is concerned with telling us who God is. Why did he make us? Why is the world the way that it is? What's God's purpose for us? What is the meaning of this life? What is it all about? So my point is that the debate between science and religion, from my point of view, has been mostly unnecessary. Because the biblical and scientific accounts are, again, from my view, complementary, not necessarily incompatible. Now, I'm going to say more about that. There are moments where they can be incompatible. But, but for the most part, they should not be incompatible. Secondly, regardless of how you interpret the seven days of creation, what is not negotiable for us as Christians is what the Bible teaches us about the relationship between God and creation. And that includes his relationship to you. You're part of the creation. We Christians are emphatic uh, that, that everything came into being by the will of God. He spoke it and it was formed, either in seven 24-hour periods or in the great seven epics of time. God the Father is the creator of all things. He created it all out of nothing. He didn't start with anything. All he had to do was speak, and it was formed. And God is intimately involved in creation. The Bible teaches us that God made human beings, male and female, in his own image, and that everything that he made was good. And so regardless of the mechanism, be it seven days or seven epics of time, the process is guided by God. However it happened, God was there guiding it all along. Having said all of that, we Christians will reject any scientific explanation that rules out God's involvement. So when a scientist comes along or a science teacher comes along 
and says, um, because of science, therefore there is no God or there is no reason for God, we as Christians would push back and say, no, that is incorrect. God is involved all along the way. Whatever the mechanism is, God is intimately involved. He is the one who actually brought it into being. Furthermore, we Christians would reject the notion that human beings are merely highly evolved animals because we are created in the image of God. We have a unique cluster of abilities and faculties that make us uniquely like God. Reason, conscious, consciousness, and love. So regardless of the what of creation, what is non-negotiable is the who of creation. The first person of the Trinity is the maker of all that is seen and unseen. Well, uh, the Father is not just the creator, although he obviously is that. He is also um, almighty, the creed tells us. Now, when the creed is talking about God being almighty, it isn't so much referring to the fact that he is almighty, in other words, that he is strong, although he certainly is that. But really what the creed is getting at is that not only can God do anything, but what the creed is saying is is that God has total active control over what he has made. That is, God didn't wind up the universe like some gigantic clockwork toy and then walk away to let it run out on its own. No, God is intimately present and active in his universe. He is present and active in your life right now. He is almighty. Even though we can't always see his hand at work, he is upholding the universe, animating it, ordering it like a potter with clay. In fact, the testimony of the Bible is that God even uses unbelieving people and unbelieving nations to fulfill his purposes. He is almighty, actively involved in creation. And thirdly, the creeds describe the first person of the Trinity as father which means that the creator of everything, the creator of DNA, the creator of the universe, stoops down to earth to invite us into a personal relationship with him. Now, in the Old Testament, we certainly got a sense that God was the father of his chosen people, the Hebrews. God has spoken in the Old Testament in that way, the father of my people. In a general way. But when Jesus came, he taught us that God wants to be our personal, intimate father. Jesus is the first person in the Bible to refer to God as Abba, which is perhaps best translated as Daddy. Let me ask you all a question. So I've got two children, they're high school age, they have their buddies over. When their buddies come over, what do you think their, their friends call me? Reverend Odell, Mr. Andrew, Father Andrew, Mr. Odell, or, yeah, Father Odell. What do my children call me? Dad. Dad. Do you see the difference? That's the relationship that Jesus came to tell us that, that God the Father wants to have with us. Dad, Father, Abba, Daddy. This understanding of God, that he stoops down to be our father in an intimate way, is one of the things that distinguishes the Christian understanding of God from every other religion in the world. Just to help you understand what I mean, by contrast, 
in the Islamic faith, there are 99 traditional names or terms for Allah, for God. A lot of them we would share, creator, sustainer, provider, ruler, but not one of them is father. In fact, you might even be able to argue that, that the, the idea that we would call father in an intimate way would, would be incomprehensible in every other religion. And to press further into this concept, it's important that we understand that God is not, however, the father of all men and women indiscriminately. And this is very difficult for us to hear in our culture, our present day culture. So this is the second, you know, the first thing we've, we've kind of pressed on today is to consider the, the relationship between faith and science. The second thing is to understand the biblical teaching about God as father and how it is distinct from the world's understanding of God as father. God is the creator of all. Every human being is made in his image. And for this reason, every time that we have a baptism, all of us take a vow. The congregation, the parents are taking a vow, along with the godparents, they take a specific set of vows to raise their child in the life and faith of the church. But we, the congregation, also take a vow. We take a vow to respect the dignity of every human being. Is that because every human being is good? Nope. Is that because every human being is a child of the Father? Nope. It's because every human being is made in the image of God. From the vilest of criminals to Mother Teresa, every human being is made in the image of God. And therefore, we are called by God to treat them with dignity and respect. And furthermore, we could say that God is certainly fatherly to all human beings. But he is not father to every human being. The best analogy I could use would be my relationship with the neighborhood children. Uh, when we, several years ago, I was pastoring in Darlington, our family lived in Darlington, and being just a little bit inland, just a little bit north of Charleston, Darlington would get a, a, you know, a decent snow maybe every other year, which was great. When you have kids, uh, it's great to go out and play in the snow. We love to do that. And we had one particular good snowstorm. And a family who lived down the street, so let me just uh, get you oriented here. So this is my son, Andrew. So these are some neighborhood kids. There's Ellen, there's our daughter, Lily, and another neighborhood child, wonderful family. Their dad worked at a nearby, um, I think it was a paper mill. And so he had to keep the mill running, so he wasn't able to take time off. I was able to take some time off. And so we, we rounded up the children, and we went out and we played in the snow. And I did my best on behalf of their dad, who was a friend of ours, to be fatherly toward them. We went sledding. When everybody got cold, we invited everybody in. We fixed hot chocolate for them. We said, you know, our home is your home. But at the end of the day, when it was time to go to bed, they went back to their house and our children stayed in our home. Again, I was fatherly toward those neighborhood children, but I'm not their father. Likewise, God is fatherly to all human beings. All human beings are made in his image, but they are not all his sons and daughters. Which, of course, raises the question, well, then how do we become a child of God? How do we go from being neighborhood children to sons and daughters of God? And the answer is that God adopts us as his children by grace when we place our faith 
in Jesus Christ. When we give our lives over to Jesus, we say, Jesus, my life is yours. Take it and use it as you will. God the Father adopts us as his sons and daughters. All of us are born into this world as, quote, neighborhood children to whom God is fatherly, but it's only when we put our faith in Jesus Christ that we are adopted as full and legitimate children with all the privileges that that relationship entails. So we get the hot chocolate and we get to stay in dad's house when the day draws to a close. Now let's look at some biblical passages that describe how this happens. I'm just going to run through these. Don't worry about necessarily turning to them in your Bible, just a few short passages, but you might want to jot some of these down. At the very beginning of the gospel, according to John, we read this. To all who did receive him, that is Jesus Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul expressed it this way in his letter to the Romans. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, as daughters, by whom we cry, Abba. There's that word, Father. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul wrote again. He said, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons or daughters, sons and daughters of God through faith. And finally, in this passage that I'm going to put up, it's not from the gospel according to John. It's from one of the letters of John where he describes the immense privilege that we have of being part of God's family, uh, where he wrote this. He said, so what kind of love the father has, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. God sent his own son, Jesus, into the world so that all who put their trust in him can become God's son, God's daughters. And friends, our primary mission that was given to us by Jesus, our primary mission is to go out into the world, go out into the places where we work, go out into our communities, our neighborhoods, and to find as many neighborhood children as we can and to teach them how to come into the household of the Father, how to become God's sons and daughters. That's what Jesus meant when he said this at the end of his earthly ministry. He he said, um, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Translation, go get those neighborhood children and invite them into the Father's house. Invite them into the Father's house. So the first person of the Trinity is God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Questions.